0: You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 110 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The MLI multilateral instrument developed by the OECD aims to close the loopholes that multinationals currently use to shift profits and hence avoid tax. One loophole is the avoidance of permanent establishments. Simon Dorovich of ANA Tax Legal Consulting will walk you through the articles of the MLI, and since the MLI covers many areas and covering them all would take hours, he will focus on the articles around permanent establishments or the avoidance of permanent establishments. My first question to Simon is whether there's any point in looking at the MLI. When it really depends on what articles in this model two countries actually decide to adopt. Here's his answer.
1: Well, we still look at the the model treaty because when we're applying the specific DTA to the extent that the the clauses and the wording are consistent with the model treaty, then, in interpreting the treaty, we can gain guidance from the the OECD's the commentary to the to the model, and because they're they're more in common than than different, it's still helpful to look at at the OECD model treaty, compare what did the model treaty look like before this BEPS project started. There was a version done in twenty ten and it got updated in two thousand and fourteen. And then yeah, we can look at the BEPS project, the base erosion and, and profit profit shifting. One of the things that they looked at, that you know, they looked at hybrid mismatches and transfer pricing and many things, but one of them was ways in which multinational entities were avoiding permanent establishment status and therefore avoiding having to pay tax in the countries that they were operating. So they identified a number of issues, came up with some suggested approaches after a long period of consultation. That then got reflected through what's called the multilateral instrument, and then Australia Australia and each country sort of decides, will we adopt the multilateral instrument? Will... We apply it to a particular double taxation agreement. Often, there are under this MLI, there are you, you can choose to apply option A or option B, and and so on. So the the general definition of uh, PE is contained in paragraph one of Article Five of the Model Tax Treaty. And it's a fixed place of business. PE. So it says, for the purposes of this agreement, the term permanent establishment means a fixed place of business through which the business of an entity is wholly or partly carried on. So you can sort of see that there's there's key terms that well, what do they mean? What is what's a place of business? Well, it's defined very broadly. It's you know, any premises, facilities, installations that the business. Is using and it's, it's sufficient to have just the space at their disposal. They don't necessarily need to be the legal owner or, or renter of the business. Yes,
0: and that's the key word, isn't it? At the disposal.
1: Yeah. So, let, if they, for example, had a, an affiliated company that allowed them to to use space in, in, at their offices, then without you know, their name isn't on the on the, the lease, that you know that would be sufficient. But simply having mere presence, so the the commentary gives an example of a salesman who regularly visits a major customer, maybe they, and every time they meet, they meet at the customer's office and Mm. so they spend in total a significant amount of time at that that office, it's still not at their disposal, they merely happen to be there.
0: They couldn't come and move a whole lot of files into the meeting room. Yeah, so, it's not theirs.
1: So place of business is interpreted quite broadly, but not, not that broadly. There are still still limits. If we say that there is a place of business, it has to be a fixed place of business. And fixed in both a geographic sense, i.e. have a particular address, or, or at least if we're talking about in some cases, the, the nature of the activity may be moving from one place to another, but it, it still needs to have some sort of continuity of of connection with a, a geographic area.
0: So Cirque du Soleil, for example, and obviously circus moving from city to city, would that count?
1: I believe it would because, well, first of all, you don't have to actually be physically fixed. So, so a tent is is yeah, sufficient you don't have to have a, a full-on building but also it's still part of a coherent whole commercially and geographically so even if even though it moves from one area to the other there's that their continuity would qualify but also fixed in, in a temporal time-based sense so if the foreign entity's presence in australia through a fixed place of business was for less than six months, and six months is a, not a hard and fast rule, but a, a good indication, Good indication. then often that's, that's not sufficient to show that you've, you've got a permanent establishment. And then yeah, lastly, carried on is defined very broadly.
0: So, that's how it has been until now, and that's not going to change?
1: Yes, that's right. So, no, no changes to, to that definition under the, under the BEPS, BEPS Action 7 nothing in the MLI will, will address, address that. Then the next paragraph gives some examples of what a permanent establishment includes, things like a place of management, a branch, office, factory, workshop and a, a mine, an oil or gas well, a quarry or other place of extraction of natural resources. And the two things to keep in mind there is it's not exhaustive. There are things that are on that list that can still be permanent establishments.
0: So there are things that are not on the list yeah. and that could still be a permanent establishment.
1: Exactly right. But also, it's possible to have a branch, an a factory that isn't a permanent establishment. If, if it, it's really just meant to try to give some, some helpful guidance... But if, if you had a place of management, that's you know, one of the examples given in paragraph two, that didn't qualify as a place of business or didn't qualify as fixed because maybe it was less than six months, then it wouldn't be a PE. It still has to meet the, the, the definition of, of a PE. These examples are really just meant to be, I guess, helpful.
0: Yes, so you have these examples, but then you also have the rule of thumb of six months.
1: Yes, yep, that's right. For some countries, their tax authorities may interpret six months may be a different requirement, but Mm. uh, yes, six months is that that rule of thumb. So
0: Australia uses the rule of thumb of six months, but Kazakhstan might use a different rule.
1: Yes. Then we get into the... A second type of permanent establishment and that's the construction or project permanent establishment. So even if it's not that fixed place of business if there is a, a building site or construction or installation project then it will be a permanent establishment but only if it lasts more than 12 months. So here we've got a, a, a 12 month if there's some major big piece of equipment that Gets installed, and you need to send a big team to to that, oversee that project. If the project lasts ten months, then that's not a PE. So you know we're looking here at things like roads, bridges, canals, it could pipelines, excavating th- these sorts of things. Now the twelve month requirement, so it will go from when the preparatory work begins through to when the project winds up and if there are some temporary interruptions in the middle, you include that time. So if they need to stop in January because the weather's too hot, then January still counts towards that that 12-month threshold.
0: And the beginning of the project would be when they first fly to Australia and canvas different sites.
1: Or would it yeah, be the well, first
0: the first digging of the of the soil, it would or would be it be the beginning the... of the
1: preparatory work? I imagine that would be before the first digging,
0: but uh, after they first come for the first time. So maybe when they start working on the DA application. Or... It
1: would depend on the on the project. It would really there's no one one answer when the preparatory activities begin. It really depends on a particular project. So the main thing, in terms of how this will change, you know, if you were trying to think of, well, how do we get around this? You're probably thinking something the lines of, oh, well, we'll we'll get one entity to, we've got a 20-month project, we'll get one entity to... To do
0: the, do the excavation, and then another entity to do the um, foundation, and then another one to do the actual building. Yeah,
1: and, and each of them, Well, their work is less than 12 months. None of them individually have a permanent establishment under this paragraph three, construction project PE. And so that's one way that they identified permanent establishment status was being artificially avoided. So they've come up with two different mechanisms for addressing it. And the first is the principal purpose test. The other one that I mentioned was... Article, action six, sorry, confused with articles and actions, and so that will deny the treaty benefits where one of the principal purposes, I think before I mentioned the principal purpose, but it's defined a bit more broadly, it's one of the principal purposes of transactions or arrangements is to obtain the benefit unless it can be established that the granting of those benefits would be in accordance with the object and purpose of the provisions of the treaty. So it's going to be, seeing how this principal purpose test is applied in practice will be, will be interesting to see. How do they identify this? What is a principal purpose? So it gives an example, which at least gives us some indication. So it says, ARCO, a company of resident of State R, has successfully submitted a bid for the construction of a power plant in State S. The project is expected to last 22 months. The project is divided into two contracts, each lasting 11 months. The first contract is concluded with Arco and the second with Subco, a recently incorporated wholly-owned subsidiary of Arco. This is leading to the question, well, yeah, why did you incorporate this this subsidiary? And Arco is jointly and severally liable liable with Subco for the second contract. So it's still Arco that
0: mm. Runs the show.
1: Runs the show. In the absence of other facts and circumstances, it would be reasonable to conclude that one of the principal purposes for splitting the project into two contracts was to abuse this 12 month exclusion. And under Action 6, it would still be a PE. Now there's a, another. I mentioned that there were two mechanisms for addressing this, this issue. The other is. Oh, I'm sorry. Before I get to that, so this principal purpose test may be supplemented with a simplified limitations of benefits rule. And that's generally, uh, broadly, it's saying to get the benefit, you have to be a qualifying person. So for example, that might be a government entity or a a listed company or a non-profit organisation, a pension fund. Now Australia, they've, we've said, we're going to adopt this principal purpose test but we're not going to adopt this simplified limitations of benefits rule. And furthermore... And why? There's an explanatory memorandum to to the bill that ratifies the MLI, but it doesn't really give much guidance on why Australia adopts certain positions under the, the MLI. Mm. So it doesn't I, say
0: why they, we didn't apply the simplified limitation of benefits rule
1: no my guess is for for all of australia's positions it comes down to under which way do you think we'll get do they think that we'll get more more money if mm. if it means that some approaches will get more money from mm. overseas but australian companies will will now be paying tax overseas instead of to australia and there's a net loss
0: i see so are the principal purpose test and the simplified limitation of benefits rule are those either-or, so a country either has to apply no. the... I see, they no, could apply so, both. So
1: there's, you can apply the principal purpose test and the simplified limitations of benefits rule or just the principal purpose test.
0: I see, but if we applied both, then the simplified limitation of benefits rule it might give an entity a way out, and that's why we closed that door.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's limiting the number of the types of entities that can access this 12-month exclusion and... I see. So Australia... Australia Australia said we don't want to limit the types of entities that may benefit from this exclusion.
0: I see. We don't Uh, want to limit. We do want to limit the types of entities. No, no, we
1: we don't want to limit. We don't want to apply the simplified limitations of benefits rule because it would also apply to Australian companies doing projects overseas. So... We want our Australian entities to be able to, to not be excluded under this rule.
0: I see. So we chose the less harsh approach. Yes. Okay.
1: Yep. So I mentioned two different ways of addressing the splitting up of our contracts. First, principal purpose test and possibly also simplified limitation of benefits. And the other rule is one that aggregates the contracts where there's closely related enterprises. And there's a minimum, like a de minimis threshold of of 30 days, but let's say you had one entity doing a project, a particular uh, construction site, for example, for 10 months, so more than 30 days, but not enough to qualify for that 12-month period. And then you've got a subsidiary company for example, then takes over the project and does another 10 months, it may be that that gets caught under the principal purpose test, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe they have some other explanation. Well, under this second rule, the times, the two periods get aggregated, and if that's more than 12 months, then the permanent establishment status is triggered. There's some guidance on whether activities uh, of closely related enterprises are connected. You can look at whether the contracts covering the different activities were concluded with the same person or related persons, whether the conclusion of additional contracts with a person is a logical consequence of a previous contract, etc. etc. So, I guess it provides a bit more another way to, to catch them out and also perhaps a bit more certainty, whereas you're looking at what the principal purpose is, is perhaps a bit bit greyer. Now, Australia has, has decided to also adopt that second approach. So the first approach, the principal purpose test, that forms part of Article 7 of the MLI. This splitting up of contracts aggregation rule This is reflected in Article 14 of the MLA. And Australia has said, we're going to adopt Article 14. However, we've made one exception. And we've said, we're not going to apply it to DTAs, or covered tax agreements, to be more specific, that deem a permanent establishment to exist in relation to offshore natural resources. So to give an example, our DTA with Norway includes, I guess, offshore drilling for oil or gas, for example. For whatever reason, we have decided we, that agreement will, will not be... This particular rule won't be affected by this aggregation.
0: probably has to do with because Norway has very rich oil and gas resources. That's probably why Norway is singled out for that. For Article 14 won't apply to our DTA with Norway.
1: That's right. So, so even though a DTA with Norway is a covered tax agreement, it doesn't automatically follow that all the articles of the MLI will will alter, or not alter because the DTA is not being altered, will be will apply. A DTA with Norway, Article 7... Applies? The, the principal purpose test one will apply, but Article 14, the
0: aggregation, that aggregation
1: rule, that won't apply.
0: I see. So with Norway, we could still break it up into different contracts, do subsequent contracts, etc., and play around with it.
1: Yeah, as long as it didn't fail the principal purpose test rule. Article 15 of the multilateral instrument looks, sort of defines what a person closely related to an enterprise is for the purposes of... Articles 12, 13 and 14. And before I go on, note that Australia has adopted this article without any reservations. So the first half of the definition looks at the relevant facts and circumstances. The second half of the definition looks at... It gets more specific. So it looks at control of 50% or more of beneficial interests, whether that's voting or... You know, interest in
0: income or interest in capital e- or voting. Exactly rights.
1: right. Yeah. That gives you a, a clearer fifty percent more or less. That's easy to see from the, the share registry and for the rights that each share, share has. So you can qualify as a closely related person under either those qualitative or quantitative, if you want to look at it that way, approaches. So
0: that was Article fifteen.
1: Yeah, Article 15 of the MLI.
0: Specific activity Uh, exemptions.
1: Yeah. So, paragraph 4 of the the Model Treaty says even if you have a, under paragraphs 1 to 3, you've worked out that you do have a permanent establishment, if you fall under one of the... Exclusions, one of the exceptions in paragraph 4, then you don't have a PE. There's notwithstanding the previous provisions, the term permanent establishment shall be deemed not to include, and there are a number of different things that are listed. I'll just list the first few to give you an, an idea of the kind of things. The use of facilities solely for the purpose of storage, display, or delivery of goods or merchandise belonging to the enterprise. That's A, B, the maintenance of a stock of goods or merchandise belonging to the enterprise solely for the purpose of storage, display, or delivery. C, the maintenance of a stock of goods or merchandise belonging to the enterprise solely for the purpose of processing by another enterprise. And it it goes on, as the last two, paragraph E, is the maintenance of a fixed place of a business solely for the purpose of carrying on for the enterprise any other activity of a preparatory or auxiliary character and the final one is some combination of activities that results whether the combination is of a preparatory or auxiliary character. So the general idea behind this exclusion is that if the activities are preparatory or auxiliary, that the that even though the activities may contribute to the, the the business as a whole, they're just too remote to justify allocating profits to those activities that, that are taxable. One of the things that the Action 7 report identified is that you know, these exclusions were identified a long time ago, well before the internet and globalisation and a number of things that have change, changed the way that businesses conduct themselves and that there are now things that may have been preparatory or auxiliary before, the maintenance of a stock of goods for the purposes of storage display of delivery, in the past that may have been Accepted that, well, of course that's a preparatory or auxiliary activity, but now we say, well, not necessarily. That could constitute really a very essential and significant part of of a of a business multinational enterprise's business, and so it really depends on on the company what is preparatory or or auxiliary, and it's perhaps inappropriate to to get access to these exemptions in some, some cases. So what they've recommended is that, that the exceptions are restricted to activities that m- they must be preparatory or auxiliary. So to give you an example, so an enterprise of State R maintains in State S a very large warehouse in which a significant number of employees work. For the main purpose of storing and delivering goods owned by the enterprise, that so the enterprise sells online to customers in state S. So the warehouse is in state S and then sells to customers in state S. Under the present, the previous rules, that would qualify as one of the excluded exempt activities. However, under this example, paragraph 4 will not apply to that warehouse since the storage and delivery activities that are performed through the warehouse represent an important asset and require a number of employees, yeah, we- paragraph four will not apply to that warehouse since the storage and delivery activities that are performed through that warehouse, which represents an important asset and requires a number of employees, constitutes an essential part of the enterprise's sales distribution business. And therefore does not have a preparatory or auxiliary character.
0: eBay, or Nike, for example. So Nike couldn't just deliver a million shoes to a large warehouse in Australia and then...
1: If the the resources that the entity is using in the warehouse, you know, the the number of employees, the the assets, uh, etc., are significant enough... And that the contribution of this warehouse to the the business as a whole is not just some minor supporting thing, but really is very significant part of the business of the enterprise. Then it would still it would wouldn't qualify for one of the the exemptions. It, it would not be considered. A, preparatory or ancillary
0: yes so in this example it's actually a nike company or a nike business that is storing and delivering the goods would it still apply if nike just delivered the shoes but then it was a a third party who delivered and sold the goods
1: if the warehouse belongs to the third party
0: Hmm.
1: completely unrelated party that nike is
0: then nike would be safe yeah then nike would be safe yeah, it's only if Nike does the warehousing and delivering itself. Yes.
1: So another loophole that they're trying to close is the fragmentation of activities. So if you have closely related enterprises, it's sort of similar to the, the splitting up of contracts. It's the same sort of concept. If you say... Well all the things we want to do in, in country A go beyond preparatory or auxiliary activities but we divided, if we have company A, B and C that are all closely related to each other and we split, each one does a little bit and individually they're all still qualify as preparatory or auxiliary, then the exemptions are available. So for example You've got Arco, which is a, a bank that's resident in State R. Uh, it has a number of branches in State S, and those branches constitute permanent establishments. It also has a separate office in State S where a few employees verify information provided by clients that have made loan applications at these different branches. Uh, the results of the verifications done by the employees forwarded to the headquarters of ARCO in State R, where the other employees analyse the information included in the loan applications and provide reports to the branches where the decisions to grant the loans are made. So in this case, the exceptions of paragraph 4 won't apply to that particular office because what they're doing constitutes a, an essential and significant part of the business. And so by trying to sort of split it off from the the branches, they're part of it, they're closely associated, it's not gonna work. So the article 13 gives three options and I'll just talk about option A because that's the one that Australia has said that they'll adopt. So option A, says that uh, that there will be, include the requirements that each of the specific activities must be a preparatory or auxiliary character in order to be excluded. So if you've got a warehouse solely for storage, display or delivery, it must also be preparatory or auxiliary character to be excluded. So that's, that's what Australia has said that they will, will adopt. And I think, given that is not adopting options B and C, perhaps we won't go into... Yes, we can to, skip them. Yes, yeah, we can skip them. Yes. So, paragraphs 5 and 6 of the Model Tax Treaty deal with dependent and independent agents. So, a dependent agent, the distinction between dependent agent and independent agent is quite similar in a way to the employee-contractor distinction. You know, the factors that, that get listed, are you know, many of the same factors that we apply to contractors. So you look at the control that the company can exercise over the particular person, who bears the entrepreneurial risk, who's responsible for the results, and does the person work for a number of principals, in which in this case they're more likely to be independent, or just for the one, in which case they're more likely to be dependent. So mm. dependent is a dependent agent I like to think of as akin to being an employee and independent agent. It's akin a to contractor. being a contractor. Yeah, an independent contractor. If the person who is the one that's concluding contracts is is an independent agent and they're concluding those contracts as part of their their independent business, then you don't have a PE.
0: So only when the agent is dependent, then you run the risk of a PE.
1: Yeah. So one thing that the Action Seven report identified is agents that were being considered to be independent, but are actually closely related to the to the principal, and so they didn't. They want to. What they've proposed is ways to to stop that from mm. from treating them as independent when in fact they're really they're really more akin to a dependent agent. Are they working exclusively or almost exclusively for a principal, for example? If so, then they shouldn't be treated as in the views of of Action Seven and MLI Article Twelve. They shouldn't they shouldn't be excluded from having a you know, forming a dependent agent PE. But for whatever reason, Australia has uh, has chosen not to uh, to apply those rules. I've tried to explain these are the ways that you can have a permanent establishment and these are the exclusions. These are the the ways in which companies were avoiding permanent establishment through I guess, gaps in the definition, exploiting those exclusions. This is sort of how they've proposed identifying it. And this is what Australia's position is. Will we, do we agree with those proposals? If they've offered, if the MLI offers choices, which choice do we make? Or do we say, no, we're happy not to do anything about this problem that you've identified?
0: Welcome back. So this episode was about specific articles in the MLI around permanent establishments. After the interview, Simon pointed out that we didn't cover Article 12 much, although it is important. Article 12 covers commissionaire arrangements, and these are used to avoid dependent agent permanent establishments. So this is where a commissionaire sells a product in their own name, but on behalf of a foreign enterprise. Because the commissaire does not take ownership of the product, there is no permanent establishment. And so this is what Article 12 of the MLI addresses. But Australia decided not to apply Article 12, and so we didn't cover it in this episode. In the next episode, episode 111, Simon Dorovich will talk about how the MLI actually gets implemented and comes into force. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaas for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.